Schwab Asset Management is proud to support the Inside ETFs podcast. As one of the nation's largest ETF providers, Schwab Asset Management offers insights and perspectives that can help advisors build on their ETF expertise. Did you know that more millennials are choosing ETFs as their investment vehicle of choice, or that many investors plan to increase their allocation to fixed income, smart beta, and actively managed ETFs? Find out how ETFs can support your clients' goals with Schwab Asset Management's educational resources. Learn more at schwabassetmanagement.com forward slash ETF know-how. Hello and welcome to Inside ETFs, the podcast where we bring the latest and greatest ETF industry perspectives directly to you through in-depth conversations with key thought leaders from across the ETF ecosystem. I'm your host, Douglas Jonas, the head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange, the home of ETFs. Now, today I'm joined by Jeffrey Sherman. He is the chief investment officer at DoubleLine. Jeff oversees and administers DoubleLine's investment management subcommittee, coordinating and implementing policies and processes across the investment teams. He also serves as lead portfolio manager for multi-sector and derivative-based strategies, he is a member of Double Line's Executive Management and Fixed Income Asset Allocation Committees. In 2018, Money Management Executive named Jeff Sherman as one of the 10 fund managers to watch in their yearly special report. And he can be heard regularly on his podcast, The Sherman Show. Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. All right. Thanks, Doug, for having me. So we're going to lean in a little bit. I know you're in the middle of a power outage in Hawaii, so we greatly appreciate you taking the time. For decades, DoubleLine has been known for really some pretty incredible research. I mean, the brand is just so well known. Can you share a bit more for our listeners about the firm and its history and how you sort of got here today? Yeah, so our, our firm was founded back in December of 2009 by a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Gunlock. And Jeffrey Gunlock was joined by 45 of us individuals who started the firm Double Line to really focus on what we believe is our mission statement and our cardinal mandate. And the way we've always approached markets is we want to focus on delivering risk-adjusted returns. And so what that means you know, throughout a full cycle is that we're not trying to be return maximizers. We're not going to go out and take the greatest amount of risk out there in the marketplace, but we're going to try to be calculated in the way we approach the risk to the overall strategy and the portfolios. And so this is really evident through our process. And our process is one that uses macroeconomics to guide us to think about the state of the economy, the state of the world, and those interactions. And no one's perfect in their forecasting. And so the idea behind building what we think is a better type of portfolio is to focus on risk integration from different pockets of the market. And by by not focusing just on one outcome, but realizing it's a complex system, there's many different outcomes that can materialize in the world, that you need to have a portfolio that's somewhat resilient to some of these exogenous factors. And so we know that things come, you know, geopolitical risk, uh, rear their ugly heads, look at 2022. Um, you know, now we know pandemics can actually transpire if you go back to 2020. And so the idea here is to build portfolios that can weather some storms, but by focusing on risk-adjusted returns, you know, the old saying is clients don't eat risk, but if we can give you a smoother experience or kind of have moderated volatility relative to comparable strategies or lower volatility, hopefully that will 
allows our investors to help stay the course, stay invested, and get through a full cycle. And so that's really our approach to markets is thinking about where that best return per unit of risk opportunity lies and try to put all those together and tilt the portfolio in those directions that corroborate are corroborated by our macroeconomic viewpoints. Yeah, I want to stay on that a bit, and and I know, and I and greatly appreciate that you're taking some pretty in you know in the weeds uh, ideas here and sort of bringing it up to the to the right level so we all understand it. But for those that are maybe a little less familiar with the way you and your teams think about the capital markets, would you mind digging a little bit deeper into the investment process, right, and the philosophy that your team is taking when you're going out and building investment portfolios? Yeah, I think paramount there, Doug, is is really focused on the idea that we're not going to make this unidirectional forecast, right? We're not going to say, this is what's going to happen in the world. We're going to bet all of our chips that direction. And so what if you look across our investment team, we have over 100 investment professionals, and, and these are people who actually touch the process. These are the analysts, the portfolio managers, as well as the traders. So we have uh, a team that covers really every sector of the global fixed income marketplace, Right? So we have different perspectives and we have specialists in each of those areas. Those specialists, we are called them portfolio managers. Right, They know the inner workings of the credits and the securities to execute these views. So what you have is this integration of the overarching asset allocation process that, that uses the top-down view to formulate the things that we talk about, probably some of the things we'll talk about on this podcast today. Right, But those uh, analyses aren't done in a vacuum. Uh, our asset allocation team you know, sits on the trading desk, they sit with the portfolio management staff, and we use their views from what they're seeing at the underlying market level to tell us about maybe burgeoning risk we don't see from the top-down perspective. And so it's the blending of these two views together that we think helps drive uh, an embedded alpha or excess kind of return to this process. And so what you have is you have the macro overlay, it kind of guides the principles. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the portfolio managers need to be able to execute the ideas that are reflective of these kind of aggregated views. And so at times, you'll see that, you know, we'll be overweight things like emerging market securities. At times, we want to repatriate capital back to the US, which is something we've done significantly this year, right? And sometimes you want to be more tilted towards credit. Sometimes you want to be more tilted towards interest rate risk. Sometimes you want to own both of those things in some combination. And so I think really, you know, what what really differentiates our team, you know, there's a lot of smart investors out there, but what you have in our team is that you have a lot of experience working together. And if you go to our senior portfolio management staff, on average, we've been working together for 16 years. So this antedates, you know, even the inception of Double Line, We've been working together. We've been using this process. And this is one that I've seen in, in my over two decade career, one that we've done month in, month out. And so I think it's that um, it, it's blending these things together, not trying to be very short term, have a kind of medium term outlook, not so medium term that you're just completely off the reservation, but trying to blend all that together to give yourself a better chance of success. And I think that's one of the key differentiator, differentiators of our team is that longevity together trusting the process, learning the process, teaching the new generation, and being able to replicate that through various market cycles. Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about this year, right? So 2022 has set the record for the worst first quarter in the bond market of any calendar year post-World War II. And then the second quarter did even worse for the <laughs> worst six-month return in the fixed income market. So 
you know, given that you're in the middle of this, you know, do, do you and your teams, do you say, hey, there's some more pain to come here? Or should we be kind of glass half full and saying, boy, for investors, this is this is one heck of an opportunity? Yeah, so I think it's a combination of the two, Doug, and it depends on kind of your risk tolerance within the fixed income market. And so if you are a risk seeker in the marketplace, there are significant opportunities. And when I say risk seeker, I'm talking about things that if, if you're going to buy these, these securities in the fixed income market, like they're replacement for equity. They're not replacement for your if bad things happen in the world. Oh, this stuff's going to arrive. Bad things happen. These are probably going to go down more. But I'm talking about pockets of the commercial mortgage market. Again, you got to be a sophisticated investor to get into it. Things like, you know, the lower rated tranches of collateralized loan obligation. Again, these are mouthful of words to say already. But these are things that are risk-seeking investments that, you know, today to a careful analysis have loss-adjusted yields in the low double digits. And in fact, if you want to go delve down and, and you want to take some risk, some of the below investment grade market in emerging market corporate debt today yields in the high teens. And again, some of these things, you're going to have some defaults over, over time, but even assuming some default rate, you can build a portfolio of those securities that is in the mid-teens today that we think to reasonable loss assumptions. So, so the answer for an opportunity, if you're a risk seeker today, um, we think there are definitely very good opportunities to put those together. But again, it's not a replacement for your, your Bloomberg aggregate exposure or, you know, your kind of risk off trade. That's, that's something that I think is much more attractive than the equity market today. Because again, we, with careful and thorough analysis, we think these securities can get you your money back. And in some instances, they trade as low as 70, 60 cents of the dollar. So there is significant opportunity in that market. Now, let me talk out the other side of my mouth here, Doug. And for the run-of-the-mill fixed income investor, I think, unfortunately, there's probably a little bit more pain to come. And the reason I say that is for how horrific the first half of the year was, we did get a rate rally partially through July. And that rate rally came on the back of the Fed. Um, and if you recall, when Jay Powell uh, had his FOMC conference back in July, the market interpreted that to be extremely dovish, that the Fed was kind of done with the hiking cycle. There's going to be a couple more hikes. They're removing guidance from the marketplace. They're not committed to this ultimate path. And, you know, the, the bond market rallied in terms of rates. The bad news is all of a sudden, a few days later, all of the Fed governors or, or a multitude of Fed governors came out and started saying, wait a second, that's not our intention. We want tighter policy. We want higher rates. We are going to continue to hike through this, this uh, environment. And so I think the bond market got a little giddy in terms of rates back in um, you know, late June, early July. And the Fed governors jawbone that back to kind of where we were really at the end of June or so. So we're back to kind of some of these inflection points within the rates market. I think the rates market does offer a little bit of value in the potential that it will offset some of your risk off exposure if we do roll into a significant recession. Um, that said, also, there's some dangers in the rates market because the front of the curve, I think, needs to still reprice upward because I don't think the Fed is signaling that they're done with their hiking regime. In fact, when you when you look at it, I think the Fed's going to try to get closer to a 4% rate before they stop hiking. Um, so I think the path, the, the bond market got a little excited about this path of interest rates and that the Fed is going to 
cut, you know, maybe as early as the first quarter. Now we're seeing hikes and kind of stability being achieved through the second quarter of next year. So the bad news is that you probably get a little bit of repriced in there. The good news is the bulk of it's done. So I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here because it depends on your objective. But for an investor that isn't worried about, let's say, the short term, let's say for three to six months and they're looking to you know kind of have a systematic process of deploying capital into the fixed income marketplace uh, we think it is a good opportunity there's just going to be a few pain points over the next few months as the market um, again digests what happens with inflation again that's a variable that none of us know what the outcome is going to be there but there is the potential for inflation to stay a bit more elevated which would push rates up a little higher than i'm talking about if it does indeed come down i think that means that the fed is potentially on the path to a soft land I know that can be controversial, but the idea that you know if the Fed is cognizant of all this and can really just stay ahead of the stay ahead of the market and say, look, we're not going to over tighten because we do think inflation under control. I think there's there's a lot of value in the fixed income market. So you can see here that even as a strategist, I think you should own some barbelled risk here. I think you need to own some credit, uh, you know, calculated risk within that side. You need to own a little bit of rate risk. I'd want to own it longer on the curve. Again, kind of like as as uh, ETF investors think about like a TLT, and that's going to be a risk off position. But if the bad things happen, that's going to help you. If good things continue to happen, you lose money on that. Your credit's going to work out pretty well because of the repricing. So I think having some of those balances with a little bit of a tilt towards credit because it is a bit cheaper is the way to go. So I know it's a long-winded answer for you, Doug, but I think it depends on what you're trying to do with fixed income on what that opportunity set looks like today. Yeah. I, and and let's stay on that topic, right? So you, you brought up inflation and the Fed and and inflation has clearly dominated the headlines, right? For for almost the entirety of the year. Where where do you see the inflation trend settling out? Yeah, well, the trend, I think we, we gravitate probably down to the low threes, but that's not in 2022 and maybe not even in 2023. And so uh, for inflation dominating the headlines, the bond market has started to dismiss inflation as being a long-term problem. And I measure that from looking at like break-even spreads. That's kind of what makes you agnostic from owning TIPS securities, the inflation-protected securities versus just outright nominal treasuries. And you're starting to, you know, what you've seen is that the bond market got to where, you know, it thinks five-year inflation is like 2.3%. It's buying the mantra that inflation will be contained. Um, and in fact, even like uh, two-year inflation is sub three again. But I think that that's a little optimistic. And again, that's why I think rates should push a little bit higher from here um, is because I think from the standpoint of looking at the inflation and looking at the pieces of it, it's going to be quite difficult for this just to moderate down to like this this natural two percent the Fed wants. Um, the the key driver of this inflation that that I'm concerned about is the housing market, and that shows up in services. It's something wonky thing called owner's equivalent rent, and that number has has operates with a significant lag. In fact, you know for all the year over year house price appreciation we've seen, we've seen twenty handles multiple times uh, this year on the year-over-year -year prints, um, the, the owner's equivalent rent has barely gotten into the mid-sixes. And so we still think that there's going to be some pressure there. There's going to be pressure from rent demand uh, on that side that will ultimately keep inflation a bit higher, even if goods inflation dissipates. Um, the good news is we start to see a convergence between services and goods. The bad news is, is that services is going up 
and it's the bigger component of CPI. So I, I think some of the supply chain issues, you know, again, uh, just having you know tighter monetary policy, uh, higher interest rates, trying to woo people into savings accounts and money market accounts and CDs. Uh, I think that that will bring some curtailment on the demand side. But ultimately, there's this kind of necessity within services called housing uh, that I think continues to put pressure. So we think inflation stays this year, you know, assuming oil is roughly where it is. It's probably a high six handle for the year uh, once it's all said and done. And I think next year is north of three. Um, but so from that perspective, the market's already got this kind of priced in that direction. You know, maybe it's off a, a quarter or a half percent on the inflation rate. But ultimately, if, if this means that you know, we, we can skate through this without having some deep recession um, and the Fed doesn't get aggressive uh, or significantly more aggressive because they know that path is kind of materializing, then we do have the potential to kind of get through this uh, resetting of the price of money. So let's talk a little bit about how that sort of yields itself back out into the economy, right? Uh, you, we've got this, you know, elevated inflation rate, uh, the markets are, are obviously contending with a slowdown. I mean, that's been the headlines, you know, while we're recording this, that that slowdown everywhere really seems to be the theme, whether it's US, China, Eurozone. Are we in a recession? And, and if not, do you assign some sort of odds on the recession happening, whether it's in the US or globally? Yeah. Yeah. Um, odds are very difficult to, to put on this stuff. But the one thing I'd say is I don't think we're in a recession in 2022. And I know that's, you know, there's, there's a big debate. Are we in one? I can I can give you macroeconomic data that says we're in a recession. I can give you macroeconomic data that says we are not in a recession. And I know like the obvious thing is the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP uh, that we saw in this country. But if you dig through the numbers, the first quarter wasn't nearly as bad as it looked. By the way, the first quarter headline number was worse than the second quarter. Um, but the first quarter had strong consumption and it had strong private fixed investment. And those are big pieces of GDP. So it's just we are weighed down by government spending and weighed down by the trade deficit. Well, I would say that those are good things to be weighed down by. Uh, second quarter, very similar trend on those on, on the government spending and the trade deficit. But now private fixed investment fell off a cliff, right? That's the borrowing cost going up, you know, people wondering are, what kind of slowdown we're at. So there is there was some kind of negativity there, but consumption hung in there. And so um, I think, you know, some of the pain we've seen in the financial markets, you know, we're trying to figure out where did the money go? You sell stocks, you sell bonds. There's not a lot of flows in the commodities. Um, where's the money going? I think some of it's just going to the economy. I think people are spending some money. Um, and you, you see that through some of the kind of leisure, hotel services. And then it brings me back to the whole point of, okay, well, we had these, these two consecutive negative quarters. The economy is slowing. It's contracting. But are we in a recession? And I point to the labor market. Now, there's debate about whether you should use the establishment survey, which we call the jobs report, you know, the, the non-farm payrolls, should use the household survey, which doesn't, um, it only counts if you're employed. If, if you have two jobs, you only count once. Um, so the, the establishment doesn't do that. But look, both of them grew last month. And for, you know, for this policy being tighter, borrowing costs higher in the market, and all this talk of a slowdown, you're seeing the job creation. So I think also you're seeing fewer job openings. So potentially this is what can help slow the Fed's path too, because you're finding more equilibrium within the labor market. Now I know again the critics are going to say, well, there's there's uh you know it's double counting, there's people having you know uh, two jobs, three jobs, four jobs, the only way to survive. 
And in some places, yeah, that, that's probably true. Uh, but at the end of it, if you see an economy expanding in terms of the labor market, it's still a positive economy. So that's why we don't have a recession call on for this year. Now, we also know that labor operates with a lag, uh, right? The economy slows down, the job losses come. We've seen a lot of this in the kind of the tech region, the crypto worlds, where there's been some job losses. And just, you know, you hear whispers of hiring freezes around. So we have to still be mindful of the data. So what that tells me, Doug, is that I still think that, you know, we can get through these last four months of the year, um, skip, uh, skirt the recession. However, the, the odds of it next year are elevated. And they're significantly elevated because we have a Fed that's uh, on this policy. If inflation does, uh, and when I say policy, it's a tightening of interest rates. They're, you know, they're unwinding some of the balance sheet to help remove some liquidity from the system. They're making it more challenging. That's the goal. That's what they're trying to do. But if you think about, you know, um, you know if they if inflation stays elevated, the Fed will uh, will continue to be inflation fighters, and that's what really propels us to having that higher probability recession next year. So, you know, people talk about the Fed's inability to engineer soft landings. Uh, by the way, they the last hiking regime they kind of did engineer a soft landing. Yes, we ended up ultimately having a pandemic, but they cut rates in early 2019. Right. So they were on top of some of this. Now, I don't believe in the whole that's hike rates just to cut them. I think they're trying to find an equilibrium rate. So, again, I just think next year is going to be more challenging if the inflation data uh, you know, does come down and starts to look contained. Then I think there is a, a, a significantly reduced risk of this recession next year. But as investors, we have to respect the you know, what the yield curves tells us, the twos, tens inversion, um, you know, the slowdown in, in the, the survey data. We saw services, PMI data come out extremely weak today. Um, again, they're, they're not kind of time series. You can, it, it's just more survey stuff, but you have to be cognizant of some of that. So um, there are a fair amount of warning signs being flashed out there, but I think it's a, it's a next year problem, not a 2022 problem. So, Jeff, we talked about a lot of what I'll call, you know, the the concerns in the marketplace. I want to talk a little bit on the other side about opportunities. Do, do you look at this market and say, hey, there there's some real places where we think we can take advantage of valuations, whether, you know, it's it's in the fixed income markets generally. Uh, obviously, you have your ETF. This is the Inside ETFs podcast, uh, DBND. You know, do you look at the way that ETF is positioned in today's market? Within DBND, the way we've got the portfolio positioned today is we have a little bit of a bias in that portfolio towards credit exposures versus interest rate exposures. So uh, if you listen to our conversation to date, Doug, we've been talking about the risk being somewhat balanced out there uh, between interest rate risk as well as credit risk. And as, as I advocated for anyone that wants to offset some of their credit risk or potentially some of their equity market risk, there's things like TLT out there, right? The, the long duration treasury ETF that, that allows people to get access to that as cheap and easy exposure. So that's one thing that I think investors should own some part of that back into the yield curve or the treasury curve uh, to be able to offset some risk. But given that the risks are balanced, why would I own more credit than interest rate risk? Well, it's because the spread that we're getting on some of these credit assets overwhelms that risk. So again, coming back to that cardinal mandate, right? risk-adjusted returns. If we're getting paid for the risk, we're happy to go out and take that risk. And so what I find in the credit markets right now, there's there's kind of the, the markets that are pricing the slowdown, and then there's some that look outright recessionary in terms of their pricing. So let's start with what looks recessionary is emerging market debt, 
today, as I kind of mentioned, some of that high yield sector yielding in the teens today. Um, uh, but it's it, it has that recessionary feel for a reason, right? The last time the Fed embarked down quantitative tightening, we caused a liquidity problem in the market. EMs had trouble with funding with dollars. So the market is sniffing that out. So it's not without risk, but it's priced for somewhat of a kind of global recession. Now, not a deep mired one, but a recession. The other thing in the U.S. market is something like pockets of the commercial mortgage market. So think about office space. You know, um, you know, if you think about kind of some of the plans, the footprint people have had, that's a market that's saying this could be pretty bad. The other part of CMBS, and it's not one that we're really heavy in, uh, is retail. Right. So retail has been the story. The death of retail has been something we, you know, people have been talking about for over a decade now. And so that that has some signs of that kind of recessionary view. So I don't like the retail trade as much. Do like some of the office uh, or, or the office space trade. Our team really has focused on some of that because there are some pockets around the country that look very attractive. So it's idiosyncratic type risk. But when I come back to the traditional credit markets, yes, you know, like things like corporate bonds, they got to where they were pricing a pretty significant slowdown, Doug. Back in June, they were there. Um, you know, high yield markets, especially early July, you know, spreads blew out. They got to, you know, around 600 and some. It depends on how you, you calculate it. Call it 600 basis points on the spread. Um, and that market has taken off massively in the last month. Now, we've had some weakness the last couple of trading days, just uh, again, as there's been more of a risk off tone. But I think that that high yield corporate and parts of the investor grade corporate market got a little bit ahead of themselves. They got to, you know, looking through um, and they're not pricing much of a slowdown anymore. So those are areas is that we've trimmed a little bit on this latest rally, just taking that exposure down, trying to raise a little bit of cash and look for something else to do with it. And so when I look across the other parts of the credit market, though, things like residential mortgages, uh, things like, uh, let's call it, um, you know, the uh, asset backed market, things that are backed by real, true physical assets, uh, these markets still have spreads that are pricing a pretty reasonable slowdown. So when I think about pulling this all together, this is how we pull an asset allocation. Okay, what is the value being offered by this sector of the market? What are the underlying fundamentals of it? Because again, let's say a solar farm or you know, you're talking about a hydroelectric plant, those things are going to trade on different uh, you know, outlooks than necessarily, let's say, an airline. Right. So be, by bringing these diverse exposures together and thinking about where they, they sit in the overall economy is, is one of the key things we discuss in our asset allocation meeting. So, um, you know, so about 60 percent of the portfolio is in this credit type exposure, very little in EMD, um, you know, no, no really kind of loans right now on that side in DBND, um, you know, high yield. We have a little bit of exposure there, but a lot of it's in the securitized credit worlds because they, they still have this kind of slow down type of talk um, within their pricing. Then the last 40% is the good old-fashioned U.S. government uh, through treasuries and then some of the agency mortgage market. And the agency mortgage market, you know, for being kind of a, a market that trades on, on the government guarantee side, what happens in there is that it's, it's really gotten beaten up a little bit again, too, as there's talk of the selling in the marketplace, that the Fed's going to have to sell some of these securities. So there is a good opportunity, you know, for those that are looking for interest rate risk in things like agency mortgages as well. And, and we've been adding to some of that across our strategies today. So Jeff, I want to switch gears a little bit before we finish out and talk about the equity markets. You know, it, it seems like there's been some signs of, of, you know, at least some early rallies. Um, 
you know, is is the bear market? Is this a bear market rally? Do these things have legs? And and when you look at that, could you talk a little bit about your ETF CAPE, C-A-P-E, and how you sort of blend in how you allocate capital across the U.S. equity space? Sure. And and so I think, you know, the market got pretty bearish, right? The equity market, it got to that point where, you know, you had everything kind of in that bear market, the the uh, 20% plus decline from the peak. And the, the sentiment was extremely negative. And this is before earnings season. And, you know, analysts had already revised down earnings and said they were going to be, I, I don't know if they said abysmal, but pick your adjective they're going to be pretty poor let's say and what you found is that they were somewhat poor in general but they were better than expectations and that really was the catalyst to really get the equity markets and some of the the, uh, like i said the high yield bond markets some of the investor grade corporate market on on a pretty meaningful rally and so the it's it's the speed of that rally the magnitude of that rally that makes it feel a little bit like a bear market rally because we're talking about a slowdown. We're talking about earnings slowdown. You're talking about corporate America signaling that earnings are slowing down and the market just continue to push up, moving the multiple up. Now in the short term, the multiple always moves up, right? Earnings don't change overnight, but I think that the market's a little bit optimistic here. And I think in general investors that, you know, um, own too much equity risk, it's not a bad time just to trim a little bit. Now, where do you put it is the question. That's where I was talking about those other fixed income replacements, things outside of the ETF space, things where, you know, they're kind of hedge fund like, you know, you're a risk seeking type of investor. I think that's much better value today um, than pockets of the of the US equity market. So and that's not your question. I brought it back to fixed income. But from from the standpoint of looking at, at the equity market, uh, I do think that there still are parts of the market that are cheaper. And so the way we run our ETF, as you mentioned, CAPE uh, for CAPE, we use Professor Schiller's cyclically adjusted uh, price to earnings ratio to allocate capital, capital across the sectors of the U.S. space. So it's a sector rotation strategy that applies the principles of CAPE to the sectors of the market to figure out which are the cheapest sectors of the market. And what it does, it takes from the 11 sectors of the S&P, it selects the five cheapest, it throws out the one with the worst momentum, and we allocate capital based upon uh, those four remaining sectors. And so uh, it's something that we've ran in the mutual fund space. It's a little bit different than mutual fund. It's not cash equity, it's it's bonds with an overlay with swaps and the like. But this is kind of the pure play on that strategy of allocating across uh, equities within the U.S. marketplace. And so uh, they both launched on March 31st of this year. Uh, and we've been able to to garner some assets in, in both of those strategies and, and they trade relatively well. So we're very pleased uh, with listing on the NYSE, Doug. So before we wrap, Jeff, you know, are, are there things advisors, investors should know about their ETFs? Should we be expecting more? You, you know, how, sh- how should everyone be engaging with, with the ETF team over at Double Line? Well, yeah, so we have an email address, ETFCapitalMarkets at DoubleLine.com. If you can't remember all that, it's a mouthful. Fund info at DoubleLine.com, info at DoubleLine. Uh, if, if you send an email to us, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll engage with you. Uh, but I think, you know, thinking about the ETF complex, is, you know, th- this wasn't our first rodeo, as, as people say, Doug. Uh, we've been advising uh, ETFs under the state street and the spider brand since 2015. And so we've been around for a long time doing things in the ETF ecosystem, just under a different brand. And so um, we still run those products today. We love those products. Um, you know, they trade very well out there also. 
Um, and we've been running them for a very long period of time as well. So the ETF complex we want to do is, is when we want to bring things out, we want there to be client demand. We don't want to just run product for the sake of running product. Um, the, when we design products, we think of two things. What's the comp- what's the, what is the client demand? And do we as investors want to invest in this product? Would we put our own capital in these products? And so when we go to the construction board and, and design a product, that's exactly the, the key questions that we're asking. And where's the demand? And so we don't want to follow fad. Uh, we don't want to just be like something thematic. I think thematics are, are fine for certain investors, just not our knitting. And so what we do best is try to say, okay, if there is a niche part of the market, how do we how do we apply the double line philosophy and thinking to that and launch a product that works in that space? And so that's exactly how we built out our mutual fund complex. Um, it started with just a couple of funds and over time, listening to feedback from clients and saying, Hey, these are things I use. We'd love to see something from you. Um, that's going to be what helps motivate the direction of our future ETF launches. So, um, we have three sub advised under state street. Uh, we have two of our own, uh, we'll likely launch more in the future, but, uh, we're not in a hurry. We're not trying to throw 30 products out there and hope one sticks. We want to focus, we want to support those products. Again, it's important. They trade well. Our market makers are doing their job. The APs are doing their job. People understand our philosophy, know how to use the ETFs. And as we do more of that education, then you'll probably see more product creation as we get that feedback from the marketplace. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. You know, we, we covered quite a bit of content for our listeners, uh, and I really, really appreciate your time. That's a wrap on this edition of the Inside ETFs podcast. As a reminder, you can find this episode as well as many other episodes of the Inside ETFs podcast on the New York Stock Exchange's website, homeofetfs.com. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes featuring thought leaders from across the ETF ecosystem. I'm Douglas Jonas, your host, head of exchange-traded funds at the New York Stock Exchange, the home of ETFs. Schwab Asset Management is proud to support the Inside ETFs podcast. As one of the nation's largest ETF providers, Schwab Asset Management offers insights and perspectives that can help advisors build on their ETF expertise. Did you know that more millennials are choosing ETFs as their investment vehicle of choice, or that many investors plan to increase their allocation to fixed income, smart beta, and actively managed ETFs? Find out how ETFs can support your clients' goals with Schwab Asset Management's educational resources. Learn more at schwabassetmanagement.com forward slash ETF know-how.